Take your Bibles and turn with me to the second chapter of John again this morning, beginning verse 12. John chapter 2 and verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered it, that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing such things? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking to the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. And we'll stop there. We'll get 23 next week. I want you to see an interesting contrast here. Because what we looked at last week, Jesus turning the water into wine at the, uh, at the wedding at Cana, and this week, Jesus in Jerusalem going into the temple and seeing the temple as it was and as it was being carried out, and the difference of his response, the contrast of his response. In that miracle last week we looked at, the miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, it was a day of great joy. In this particular instance, it's a day of judgment. Not only that, it was the last week we looked was a day in which the Lord supplied the guests with the best wine they'd ever tasted. And while on this day is the day that he emptied the temple of money changers and the sellers of oxen, sheep, and doves, he, he drove them out. So it went from giving them the best that they had to running them out of the presence of a, a place of worship. The former, the wedding, was a day in which he was commended for the wine that he supplied. Remember the head waiter told the bridegroom, you brought out the best. He was commended. He was indirectly praised for what he had been given. On this day, he's challenged by the authorities with show us a sign on what authority you do this. Show us why you think you have a right to come in here and change the way we do things. So from commending to challenging. And, and fourthly, you find here the events of the marriage day point explicitly to his death. The wine that later would become symbolic of his blood. And, and Jesus saying to his mother, my, my hour has not yet come, come referring to his death, the, the wine being the blood. That, that first miracle that he did indirectly and implicitly pointed to his death. The events of this day are an implicit re uh, reference or an explicit resurrection, if you will, to his resurrection. So in these two days... Uh, separated by a bit of time in Capernaum. Verse 12 is just something of a transitionary verse. It just says, and, and they went down to Capernaum, him and his mother and his brothers and his, uh, and his disciples. Doesn't say what they did there during that time. They just stayed there a few days. But then the Passover came. 
Now remember in the wine to water, we saw that one of the real, the real teachings of that was that, that he took the water pots, which were used for purification, for washing their hands before they would go into the wedding feast. He took the water pots, which were a part of the old law, which were a, were a very vital part of obeying the legal system, and he turned that into wine, the new wine of the gospel. And so in that miracle, he's showing that the old is giving way to the new. The old way of doing things, the old legal system, is giving way to the grace and the glory of God in the gospel. And, and that's very important to understand. But another thing I want you to see is that in this first verse, or in this first miracle, those first 12 verses, or 11 verses, we saw there Jesus giving us a, a miracle that showed his absolute power. Now that's a lot of what the signs that John chooses will do all through this book. John chooses signs that show his power over natural things. It was not a natural thing to see water out of a, 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 a ceremonial water pot turned into wine but but Jesus power he didn't have to speak to it he didn't even have to do anything he just willed it and it happened and, and it took place and he provided with that but in this passage as you will see with other actions of Christ not the miracle signs but with the actions of Christ you will see not so much his power demonstrated but his authority demonstrated and what you're seeing as he goes into the temple to observe the Passover, or, or at the time of the Passover, you're, you're seeing his authority become manifested all of a sudden before the eyes of the people. Now, now the thing I want you to see first and foremost is just simply how he, he came into that place. He came in, and what he found was that in the outer courts, now this was not in the Holy of Holies or in the holy place in the temple, Remember, this is the second temple. It's not Solomon's temple. This temple that's been built after the exile, and the people have come back, and the temple is built there, and it has the Holy of Holies. It has the holy place. It, it has the place where the Jews can go and worship. But this is more in the outer court. Now, the outer court was not in the temple proper, but it was in a part of the temple complex. But the significant part of the outer court was is this is where the, the God-fearing Gentiles gathered to worship. They, got, they could not go into the temple proper because they were not Jews. But these were Gentiles who had come to see Yahweh as the true and the living God who had gone through ceremonial cleansings and had gone through ceremonial rituals in order to be acceptable. And they come into the outer court and they worship there. You almost get a picture here of the, the, the Gentiles can't worship because there's bleeding of cattle and there's cooing of doves and there's, there's sheep making all sorts of sounds. I guess mooing of cattle, bleeding of sheep, whatever. They're, they're making a lot of racket. They're making a lot of noise as they come into the, as they come into the place. And, and it's just a disruptive thing from the very beginning. But not only that, these guys are there as merchants of these animals. These animals that can be offered as sacrifices in the temple. Now, we don't have a temple today that is a building. Uh, scripture makes it clear that God's temple now, God dwells the temple in the bodies of his people. So uh, we, we don't have a temple in the sense of that temple. We don't have altars where we offer sacrifices. We don't, our altar was at the cross 2,000 years ago where the ultimate and final sacrifice was offered. We don't have altars. We don't have washings. We don't have cleansings. We don't have all those ceremonial things that we have. But there's a great application of what we see here, and we'll see that in just a minute. Jesus goes in expecting to find the temple or anticipating that he should find the temple as a place of, of true worship. 
a place where people come to, to, to sacrifice their offerings unto God, but a place where they're focusing on God, focusing on what the, the law teaches, and what he finds is a place of commerce. He, he comes in and finds that they provided these animals. Now, in one sense, they were doing a service. During the Passover, people came from long distances, and so they would come to town, they would come to Jerusalem, and rather than having to bring animals with them from their homes and so far, this was kind of a convenience thing. I've often wondered if this was analogous some way to churches putting in ATM machines. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Uh, we won't go there. Uh, but I, I did see an article last week. Uh, we've been looking for new equipment and stuff for the church where you can have a, a thing attached to the, uh, to the offering plate. Attaches right onto the side, and as it moves down the aisle, they can swipe their credit card and put in an amount and keep it going. We're not going to go there, okay, as, as grace. We're not going to do that. But they did have the, they had, a, they had it there as a, as a convenience for the people. So they didn't have to bring their own stuff from home. They could rather purchase it there and make their offerings. Some have speculated that they were inflated prices in these animals and that the money changers were making a, a, a virtual killing by selling these and inflated prices as the people would come in, taking advantage of their need to worship by giving them the, the stuff they need to worship with at, at a higher price than would be a normal price. I don't know if that's the case or not. But I do know that what Jesus saw when he entered into that, that temple area was something that displeased him greatly. And I think the first thing that we have to realize and recognize is that Jesus disapproves in that point and even today of all irreverent behavior in a place of worship. He, he disapproves of irreverence when we come into a place to worship God. That a time ought to be set apart where there's a focus on nothing else but God. It's not a focus on man. It's not a focus on the speaker. It's not a focus on, on entertainment. But there's a focus on lifting our voices and lifting our hearts in praise uh, to the Lord God through his son, Jesus Christ. I, I, I just felt a, a sense of, of worship as we sang this morning. But I also felt since worship as, as Pat prayed and expressed that same thing that was in that song. And he's right. Sometimes a song that we lift in our hearts and lift in our voices to God can just really say it. And, and to realize the cost that was made. You know, the cost in that temple area for those animals to be laid on an altar and killed was minuscule compared to the cost of our Savior, our sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for our sins. Would you agree to that? Absolutely. And so Jesus comes into a place that is designated to be a place of worship, that is designated in a very real sense, in a very powerful sense, to be designated the house of God, more so than the church building is today. I know we call churches that, but the temple was it in a much more specific and much more direct way. A church today only becomes the temple of God when the temples of God gather in it. The people of God are there. Any other time, it's just a building. It's the church when the people are there. But we see Jesus coming into the temple and being absolutely incensed and, and giving grave disapproval to this irreverent behavior that's taking place in the temple. There's a fulfillment of a prophecy here, I think, that goes all the way back to the last prophet in the Old Testament, back to Malachi. 
Malachi, in his prophecy, wrote about things uh, related to the coming of the Messiah. And I'll just read this. Don't turn there with me right now. Make a note of it. Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Where Malachi the prophet says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Malachi says there's, there's one coming, the Lord himself, who will come into his place of worship and he will begin to purify. He will begin to clear it because honestly and truly, the thing Malachi was so upset about in his whole prophecy was that of disingenuous worship. Malachi was, was, was bothered by just the, the inappropriate worship that the people were doing. He says at one place, you know, you bring in a lame lamb or a lame sheep to be altered. Now, the, the law absolutely said you must bring the best. You must bring a pure and a spotless, unblemished lamb to bring on the altar. But the people were bringing whatever, the, the, the blind lambs. They were bringing in blind sheep. And, and were, they were basically saying, listen, we can't get anything for this at market anyway. Let's offer this to the Lord. And Malachi said, you bring in the blind and the lame animals. Try giving that to your governor. Basically says, Try paying your taxes with that. See if your governor will be pleased with what you're bringing. And you're bringing offerings not to a governor, not to a government, not to someone who is a, just another human being. You're bringing your offerings before the living and the true God, and you're bringing subcategory offerings. See how pleased God will be with that, Malachi is saying. And so he says, there's coming a day when the Lord is going to appear, the one whom you say you seek, the one who you say you worship in his temple, the one in whom you say you delight, he is coming. And Jesus is now entering the temple as that one, the one with authority to cleanse it, the one with authority to set things right the one with authority to say, this is my property, this is my place, and it's to be a house of prayer. It's, uh, as, as Luke recorded and the other synoptic gospels reported, it's to be a house that focuses on God and focuses on worship. It's not to be a place of commerce or a place where it is taken lightly. It's to be a place where worship is offered and offered clearly. Nothing in all the gospels whether it be the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke or, or the gospel of John that we're looking at, nothing in any of the gospels so brought Jesus to a point of marked, a marked display of God's wrath, a marked display of his own wrath, as did this. He was angry. I, I titled this same sermon, Is That Anger, Jesus? And it is anger. It's not anger because he was criticized or not anger because uh, they said something about him directly, you know, as far as him, Jesus, the man was concerned. But it was anger because the glory of God was being subdued. The glory of God was being missed because the people were taking lightly 
their purpose for even being in that place, their purpose for being present in, in, in the temple and in the presence of the Lord. They, there was just a, there was just a casualness about it. It was just a, this is what we do. This is, this is just a ritual we go through. There was no intensity of worshiping God. You know, as I sang those songs this morning, like uh, the great hymns, Blessed Be the Name and How Great Thou Art. And then we got to that song, You Made Us Your Own. Those just sort of all coalesced together to say, wow, what a glorious God we, are, we have. Yes, his name is blessed. Yes, he is great. And he had no, no compulsion whatsoever to make us his own, but by his grace. But God, by his grace, made us his own. I mean, if that doesn't push aside every unnecessary thing, if that doesn't strip away everything that just sort of demands our attention to pull it away from worshiping God, then I don't think anything can. It would be indicative of a dead heart. And see, here's the problem. The leaders of the temple, the, the, the priest and the and those who, who ruled in the temple and oversaw the, the temple, they were there professing to be great zeal for God's law. I, uh, I, we want to obey the law. We, we want to obey it so much that we've taken the ten laws, ten commandments, and we've magnified them into about 750 other commandments, and we are diligent and zealous that every, every jot and tittle of our law is, is observed and obeyed is what those leaders would do. And yet the most basic thing that this place, this temple, is to be a place where God is worshipped in truth, where God is worshipped in accordance with his word, there's no zeal. There's no enthusiasm. There's no desire for it to be proper and right and in order. John even says later on, he says, you know, we, we remembered we, we rem his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now that's out of Psalm 69 and verse 9, which is out of the portion of the psalm that, that Todd read this morning as our scripture reading, as our hearing of the word. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, now John's not clear if he and the disciples remembered that later on. I mean, I think it's kind of clear that as Jesus said at the end of this gospel, says to his disciples that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and he will remind you of the things that took place. He will remind you of, 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 of truths that you will have forgotten, but the Holy Spirit will draw them back. And I don't know if as John's sitting down writing this gospel, the Holy Spirit says, whoa, when Jesus went into the temple and drove all those people out, turned over their money tables, threw the animals out of the temple, uh, the temple proper, that when he did all that stuff, it was just Jesus' zeal for God's house that absolutely consumed him. I don't know if it's later they remember that or while they're watching him, they're going, whoa, the zeal for God's house is consuming him right now because he was consumed by it. You know, we, we ought to be consumed by a zeal for the presence of God. 
we ought to be we ought to be consumed when we come into this place just a building but a place where the people of God gather, the, in, the, the temples of God, the bodies of God's people, the body of Christ, where we gather for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that is to worship him. When that call to worship is ordered uh, or, or offered, it's not ordered, it's offered. When I read the scriptural call to worship, there ought to be something that comes over us at that point that just says, now, I don't care. I don't care about the final four. Sorry, I don't care about the national championship in football. I don't care about what's on the dinner table at home. I don't care about what I'm going to do this week. I don't care about what the afternoon holds, whether it's a nap or whether I'm going to be busy. I don't care about all that stuff. When I come into this place, there is a consuming of worship. There is a consuming of zeal for the worship of God in this place. I mean, I mean, all the you know, just blast everything else out. And from the time that call to worship is offered, as we sing, as we read Scripture, as we come to that point of studying God's Word, and as we come to that time of commitment and reflecting on what God has said through His Word, and then we dismiss whatever comes between the call to worship and the dismissal ought to be a, a consuming fire for the zeal of the glory of God. That ought to be all there is. There's, there's no place for entertainment. There's no place for distraction. There is a consumption that ought to take place. J.C. Ryle, the, the bishop of Liverpool, uh, years ago, uh, a contemporary of, of Spurgeon, uh, said this in his reflections on the Gospel of John. He said, Are there none who profess and call themselves Christian behaving every Sunday just as badly as these Jews? Are there none who secretly bring into the house of God their money, their lands, their houses, their cattle, and a whole train of worldly affairs, not to offer sacrifices, but just to consume the mind? Are there none who bring their bodies only into the place of worship and allow their hearts and their minds to wander to the ends of the earth while there ought to be worship taking place before God? These are serious questions. These are serious things to think about. These are important things that each of us ought to think about when we come in here. What would Jesus do if he came into our place of worship? Would he be tempted to take a cat of nine tails or, or make himself a scourge of rope, a scourge, a whip out of rope, and, and go through and say, Get out of here until you get your heart right. Get out of here until you get your thinking right. Get out of here until you can come before me in spirit and in truth and worship me without hesitation and worship me without distraction and worship me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. For everything that you are, love me. That's the importance of worship. That's why Jesus was so incensed at the temple. It wasn't being used for worship. It was being used to go through the motion, but yet do their own thing, make their own money. I tell you, when I read this passage and I read the one later on in the synoptics and 
There's debate about whether there's only one cleansing, and John just sort of put it up the first so he could show his authority, or there were two cleansings, one at the beginning of his ministry. John talks about one at the end of his ministry, just before his crucifixion, that the synoptics talk about, and, and, and I don't think that's a big deal. I tend to think there are two. But the real point is, that doesn't matter. What matters is that we see the seriousness with which Jesus takes worship. And that we see that as he was consumed with the zeal of, his, of God's house and using that God's house as synonymous with the place of worship, as Jesus was consumed with the place of worship being a place of worship and a place of prayer, then so ought we. So ought we. That's why, you know, I, when we get over to our new home, one of the things that will be installed this week are the doors into the sanctuary. And the doors into the sanctuary are different from any other door in the building. They're different from any door that I've seen in a long time. They are, they are special doors. They are beautiful doors. And, and anybody who comes into that foyer and prepares to go into that sanctuary will know without a word being said we're going somewhere special. We're now entering into something that is special. It's different. We can go down to the Sunday school room. They've got nice doors on the Sunday school rooms, but they're just doors. We can go into the offices, and they're beautiful doors on the office doors, but, but they're just offices. They're, they're just square or they're rectangular, and, and they're just normal. These, these look like cathedral doors in Europe. Not because we don't look like cathedral doors in Europe, but we wanted to make a statement. As you enter out of that foyer, which is a place of fellowship, it's a place to be together and enjoy one another and, and share with one another. And, but, but when you walk through those doors, there, there's, there's going to be a mental picture painted that we're entering into somewhere, to some place special, to do something special. We're not going in there just to talk about what's happening in the world. And when we get in there, we're not going to hear... You know, I remember one of my favorite preachers is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who died in 1981, and he, he preached at Westminster Chapel throughout the, the whole of, of the Second World War. And, and he got a lot of criticism because he didn't preach about the Nazis. He preached about Christ. And he said, yeah, there's terrible things going on around us, but you know what? Those terrible things... They're nothing if we get a focus on who Christ is and understand who Christ is. So I'm not going to preach on the presidential race this year. I'm not going to preach on, on health care. I'm not going to preach on things of that nature. That's, that's irrelevant to this place. This place, this desk, is to proclaim the Word of God, the truth of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ as sovereign Lord of all the world. And if we get that right, all the other will take care of itself. We're to have a zeal for your house, consumed by a zeal for worship, consumed. Well, they make a demand. The Jews then said, and the Jews there is used, as John used it many times, not to talk about the whole of the Jewish nation, but to talk about the leaders there in the temple. They say, what gives you authority? What are you, uh, who do you think you are? 
What do you show as a sign of your authority? Now, remember, John is all about signs here. And, and Jesus could have said, well, I'll show you what. I'll show you a sign. You see that, that lame lamb over there? I'll make him pure and perfect. I'll make him a spotless lamb. For he could have a number of signs. He could have turned the water in the temple into wine. So, well, there's, there's a sign. There's something. Go drink the wine now here out of the water pots. He could have done any. There was a thousand things he could have done, but he didn't give them a sign. I always find it interesting. Jesus is ready to show signs of his authority and his power until they're demanded of him. Have <laughs> you ever noticed that? When somebody says, well, you just show me. Said, no, I'm going to show you. You wouldn't believe it anyway. That's the way they were. They said, show me a sign. He said, I'll tell you a sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, John gives us the interpretation of that. The temple is not the physical building. It's his body, and he's, he's talking about the resurrection. He's pointing to the resurrection. But they said, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? It took 46 years, and in reality, it had been 46 years in the making, but it was still being built on. It reminds me of uh, one of my favorite places in the world I've ever visited. I haven't visited a lot of places in the world, but so I, I guess it's a, a limited knowledge, but it's Strasbourg, France. been there twice. And, and Strasbourg, France, right in the middle of the city, of the new city, which is the new city is about 700 years old. In the middle of the new city is, uh, is a cathedral. And it... There's pictures of it. There's paintings. Oh, there's paintings of it. No pictures. With two beautiful spires that that go all the way up on either side. But when you see the actual cathedral, there's only one up there, and one's got scaffolding around it. It's about a third of the way up. Been built on that for about 170 years, and they're still not through with it. I mean, there was just those the, the craftsmanship that went into some of those buildings are are just not like what we build with massive specialists who come in and do everything to, to make the building what it is, put it together and get it up. Of course, their buildings will probably be around 1,000 years from now. Ours, we'll see. But, but the point I'm making is this. They said there's no way you're going to tear this down. But I want you to notice Jesus didn't say if you destroy this temple. And he didn't even say he didn't say, I'm going to destroy this temple. He just used sort of a, a statement, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up. I think there's a, a, a sort of a double meaning there that Jesus is throwing at those leaders. He's, he's pointing to them that they're already destroying the temple. They're not tearing down the walls. They're not tearing down the, the, the Holy of Holies, and the, the, the veil into the Holy of Holies will be torn on a particular day. The day he dies. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you're, you're destroying it already. You're, you're using it for things it was not intended to be used for, and you're not using it for the worship that it was intended. So you destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. But, of course, as John says, and I'm sure John knew this later on very clearly because he didn't right now, he was talking about his resurrection. All through his ministry, Jesus will make references to his resurrection, that the, the Son of Man must go and, and must die, but in three days he'll, he'll rise again. The disciples just went, what was he talking about? So I'm sure when Jesus said this, I'll destroy the temple, in three days I'll raise it up, John and, and, and Peter and Andrew and Philip and 
Nathaniel started looking around for some dynamite or something to tear it down with. We'll see this miracle, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you want to see the real sign? You want to see the ultimate sign of my authority to come in here and say you're using this for something that's not intended for and you're not doing what you're supposed to do? You want to see that? You just watch. And I'll give you a sign right now, but you keep your eyes open because you're going to destroy this temple, Jesus is saying. You're going to put me on a cross, and I'm going to die there. I'm going to really die there. I'm not going to swoon away. I'm not going to just uh, hang there and get, get uh, dehydrated and pass out, and you're going to think I'm dead. I'm going to die. I'm going to be destroyed. But in three days, this temple, this temple will be raised up. That's a sign you ought to watch for. You know, we're coming into the, to the, the Easter season. We're coming into the time where we celebrate Good Friday, his death and, and his burial. And we celebrate uh, Easter Sunday, the, the truth of his resurrection, which is in reality we celebrate every Sunday we gather because we worship on this day because of his resurrection. And we come to realize that that sign has been given, the ultimate sign. We're going to get all John's signs, but that ultimate sign, his resurrection, coming back from the grave, that's what we focus on as the sign that he was, who he said he was, and he had the authority to say the things that he said. I want you to watch him through this gospel. I want you to watch for three things. I want you to watch for the seven miracles, the seven signs that John uses, the last one being his resurrection. I want you to watch for the deeds that he does, like cleansing the temple, purifying the temple, uh, and see where his authority rides in on those things. His power, his power in the, uh, in the uh, miracles, the signs, his authority in the deeds. And then I want you to listen throughout this gospel for two little words. I am. I am. Those speak of his origination. Those speak of his eternality. Those speak of who he is. So his power, his authority, and his person. John magnifies before us. But in this particular deed, the question is, for you and me, are we consumed with zeal for worship? Or are we consumed by what's out there. That's the question. It's a question only you can answer. It's a question that's reflected in the song we're going to sing in a few minutes for our, our hymn of commitment. Receive the glory. Lord, you receive the glory in my life, in here, and then when I scatter... Lord, receive the glory. Let's pray. Your heads bowed and eyes closed. One of the questions in the faith talk is 
basically why did they the sellers in the temple anger Jesus and we know he was sinless so why is his sin why is his anger not sin and our anger is mainly it's because our anger usually is because we're upset because something's been done to us he was angered because people were were negating the glory of God he got angry because people were misusing the place of worship that ought to make us angry too he got angry over sin not his own because he had none but we ought to get angry over sin too not that of other people but that that consumes us and we ought to turn to him for forgiveness because if we're in Christ we are forgiven we ought to turn to him for cleansing but it all begins with just confessing to him Lord my anger is not righteous anger like yours Lord let me be angry over what you're angry over let me overlook what you overlook let me not take it to myself Jesus help us to love the things you love and hate the things you hate help us Lord through our lives to point the glory to you we pray this in Jesus name Amen as we stand together